Welcome to the Food-Minded Fellow Podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Smith. This week on the podcast, I caught up with a salt producer who entered some uncharted waters to produce sea salt the old-fashioned way. Hi, so my name is Heidi, Heidi Feldman, and my husband, who is full-on 50% of Martha's Vineyard Sea Salt, is Curtis Friedman. Uh, we both work outside the farm, Down Island Farm, but we spent a lot of time on Martha's Vineyard Sea Salt as a project because we felt it was really important to bring a local salt to the island as opposed to having salt impo- imported from all over the world. Heidi and Curtis didn't start their careers as farmers. Both of them grew up in Connecticut, but they didn't meet until they were at school in Boston. After school, they settled in Jamaica Plain, where they found a great sense of community and began to do some small-scale farming in their yard. While we were there, we had um, a little house and we uh, started growing our own fruits and vegetables in our backyard and our front yard. Their ties were strong to the local community in Jamaica Plain. But as the neighborhood began to change, they found a tie to another community. We love JP, and as luck would have it, our next-door neighbor had a good friend who had a home in Oak Bluffs at the time, and this was like uh, the late 80s, early 90s. And she said to us, hey, you should come on down to the vineyard and check it out. It's we, All of us go down as a group and we hang out. And to which I said, what vineyard? There's a vineyard near here? I didn't know there were any grapes. Who's growing grapes? And Curtis said, oh, yeah, I was there when I was 12. Well, fast forward 10 years of coming here for about two weeks at a time and being in a vacation home with um, 10 other people or eight other people and bringing most of our food from our gardens and from Haymarket and the grocery store because the vineyard was pretty expensive and we didn't want to eat out, we realized that we could maybe live here. We started clamming, we started fishing, and we were just here really for two weeks a year. Except for our honeymoon, we spent um, most of our summers here in July, like two weeks in the summer, and then our honeymoon was actually in January. So we got a taste of the vineyard off-season. During the peak summer season, Martha's Vineyard is home to over 100,000 residents. In the off-season, many businesses are shuttered. The population is closer to 15,000, and it's a very tight-knit community, with a little bit different vibe than the summer. I said to Kurt, I think we could live here. And he was like, you're crazy. So, (laughs) um, but as it would happen, we uh, decided to leave Jamaica Plain. The neighborhood that they loved so much was changing around them rapidly. And they decided it was time for a change. They set their sights on North Carolina. And they even had some job interviews lined up. But it didn't seem like the right place for them. So they began to search for a property on Martha's Vineyard. And it took us about three years of searching with a very diligent realtor to find this location that we now call Down Island Farm. And I wanted to name it something. After a couple of years we'd been here, I wanted to name it something. And I asked all my friends who had come to the vineyard what we should name it. And they came up with some really cute names. But finally, I thought Down Island gave it a sense of place. We're Down Island. We're not in the Up Island uh, Up Island nether regions. We're down island. We're very central to the entire island, but um, we wanted to give it that sense of place. On Martha's Vineyard, we refer to things as up and down island. This can be a bit confusing, as up and down don't correlate to north and south. If you were, however, to look at a topographical map, you'd notice that the elevation rises as you move up island. As Heidi and Curtis 
began their farm, they hadn't settled on a crop. They had named their farm something vague on purpose. And as they began to focus on what they would produce, an idea came to Heidi. It occurred to me that um, she means oak and take means mushroom, and that we are sitting in the middle of an oak forest. It's our predominant hardwood. And that maybe we should give, use, give making mushrooms a try. Heidi and Curtis focused their farming efforts on shiitake mushroom production for nearly five years. As soon as their production began to grow, they were hit with an unfortunate blight of several moth species, which ground their production to a halt. And what they did was they came in and they ate the forest, so they ate all the green, which means all the trees went into shock, um, and they, the, unfortunately the caterpillars also left their dropping, so we immediately saw that we couldn't produce mushrooms because we had no way of protecting the logs. Thankfully, the Ag Society was great. They came forward with a grant for us for these uh, shade shacks, which we put up. Um, and then the next problem was we started losing this beautiful hardwood that we had. We had been sustainably harvesting the smaller trees that were about you know, six or eight inches in diameter and not the really big trees because we wanted to enable the growth. It was already about 40 years old and we wanted to have a big thicker canopy but the trees started dying in mass and they were dying um, off at such a rate that Tim Bolin from the uh, Arboretum did a flyover uh, just to check out all of the different areas that could hit on the island he agreed that we were hit really really hard here. Unfortunately the damage was done. They were forced to stop producing shiitake mushrooms. Fortunately they were able to barter or trade off most of their equipment to Martha's Vineyard Mycological, who you may remember from last week's episode. After this devastating blow, it took nearly two years to come up with the next idea for Down Island Farm. We had limited options. We had somewhat limited resources because we're two adults with a mortgage and trying to make our way through, through life. But really what came alongside in parallel was this whole local food movement. It just kind of blew up in a really good way on Martha's Vineyard. Everybody who had not been farming but remembered the farms of yesteryear said, oh my God, people are interested in farming again. Then all these young people who love to come here anyway, winter, spring, summer, fall, they stay over the winter. I love them. They said, yeah, local food, local food is good. Um, then Edible Vineyard came out and Allie Burlow was doing the local report on WCAI. And the, you know, the, the Farm Institute was born all around the same time. And then, you know, Thimble Farm happened. IGI, you know, later on came over and took over the, the Thimble Farm. So there were, there were existing farms that were great, like Allen Farm and like the Mermaid Farm. And I'm going to miss a bunch of them, Morning Glory Farm. But then there was new life bred into farming, and especially around local food and, and doing it in a sustainable way so that um, we weren't relying on chemicals or on the, you know, those, those horrible seed companies that will sue you if you keep a seed from a plant that you grew from their seed. She goes on from here, but I think you get the point. We were looking and thinking and thinking and looking, and then um, I ran a couple of ideas by Kurt. He ran a few ideas by me. Um, I was growing edible flowers and selling those to restaurants, but that really wasn't, you know, 25 cents a blossom isn't going to get you very far. I mean, the fuel alone here costs that much to get somewhere. 
Um, and really what came to pass was uh, on a very hot summer day in between clients, I needed lunch and I wanted to, I was kind of in that desperate mode between going from up island to down island and there really wasn't anywhere to stop. So I stopped at, um, it was Garcia's at that point, I believe. I don't think it was 7A yet. And um, it was so packed I couldn't get in the front door. So I ran into Allie's and I got myself a bag of Cape Cod sea salt and vinegar potato chips and a Nantucket nectars. This is when I did salt and sugar together. Sat down in my car and kind of was reviewing my notes and trying to get ready for my next client when it dawned on me that I was eating sea salt chips and that I lived on an island and that I lived on an island surrounded by water with beautiful water quality. And I went, oh my God, sea salt. So I ran inside and I saw Rhonda, the manager of Alley, said, Rhonda, is anybody making sea salt on Martha's Vineyard? And she went, oh, well, well, we've got buy the sea salt, but they do a blend of kosher salt with herbs. He said, nobody else, right? She said, nobody else. So that night I like ran home to Kurt and I said, I've got it. We're going to make sea salt. And he said, you're crazy. <laughs> There's a common refrain. As Heidi continued to ask around, she found some friends that were producing some small quantities of sea salt in their homes. But it was time to do some research on how to do this on a large scale. I turned to the internet. I used to be a tech person. I still do some tech work. Um, that's my consulting work. And I went on YouTube and I went on just the World Wide Web using any browser available to me. And I found that, you know, obviously Kurlansky's book on salt just predates salt into the, what, 10th century? He gets it way back there coming forward through the various cultures and the applications for salt when salt was at the top of our food pyramid. The book Heidi's referring to is Salt, A World History by Mark Kurlansky. I myself wasn't familiar. And then you get the practical learning on YouTube about how they're actually raking salt in uh, the south of France. So what we did was take two to three years of trying different buildings, trying different methods to solar evaporate the salt because we did the calculation of how long it took to boil water either on a propane burner outside or on a electric stove inside. But the energy required to boil salt was absolutely tremendous. So we decided solar was the way to go and it just took us two to three years to finally come up with the right um, edifice design it, build it, get it up. We did all that ourselves with a little help from our friend Mike Martin, who's a pretty well-known musician on the island. Uh, and there we have it, the beginning of Martha's Vineyard sea salt. Their sea salt production didn't come together overnight, and their methods continue to be retooled to this day. When we started thinking about making sea salt, we did a little research. And we found out that there's actually a strong tradition of salt making on Martha's Vineyard and that it dated back to the British blockade. So one would think, why would it have anything to do with the British blockade? Well, the settlers were tied, really tied to the British. They needed to get a lot of their goods from the British because the colonies were somewhat established, but not completely established um, so these great settlers here on Martha's Vineyard started to starve when the British blockade occurred because the British were bringing salt from the Mediterranean and from the islands. Fortunately, settlers are pretty level-headed people and they realized that there was an ocean lapping at their shores and that somehow the Indians had managed 
to make a living and not die. And I don't know if it was through a transference of information with the Indians or if the native Wampanoags, or if uh, the settlers figured it out themselves, but in very short order, and we're talking about 10 years or so, um, creating sea salt on Martha's Vineyard and the Cape and the other island, Nantucket, became a major force, a major uh, form of commerce, because the salt would then go to Boston and other major cities. Now, post-blockade, uh, and also because settlers were traveling west, a major uh, deposit of salt was found in western New York State. And so that really eased up the need for salt from the shore, and so the industry just kind of fell asleep. By the mid-1800s, Saltwater springs were found near Syracuse, New York, that eventually earned it the moniker the Salt City. There are still salt mines in parts of New York that are producing salt to this day. But on that history, we started looking uh, at the island in terms of where there were different salt marshes and where salt was being produced. And certainly down in Vineyard Haven, where the Steamship Authority is located now, and if you had kind of, I guess that would be north along um, the, uh, let's see, West Chop, there were some locations there where you could see the land is lower. And what the settlers did was um, they used the moon phase and the tide to bring water in, and they actually brought it into constructed oak buildings and then let it dry a little bit and then shuffled it into, uh, via a ch uh, channel, into the next oak building. So they were always kind of moving the salt along into different evaporative states. And so they would get salt that they used for, uh, you know, salt cod and for tanning those hides and uh, flavoring their food. But they would also get globber salt, which was an almost inedible salt. And I forget the uses for it, but that was um, very much when you get the brine so thick, but yet nothing will dry. That salt had had a use as well. So on on all that history, we started looking at ways to dry our salt. And I mentioned previously that we quickly figured out that the energy exchange and using some kind of man fo fuel, fossil fuel, wasn't going to be good for us. Um, we live on an island that is very expensive to begin with, and we didn't want to add to the, the carbon footprint. And with all that in mind, the solar drying experiments began. And the first three attempts were very pitiful. Uh, the first one, Curtis thought we could just put a puddle of water on slate and have it open air and it would dry. And well, no, the slate just kind of absorbed everything and then the bugs landed in it, so that didn't work. Um, and then we had a small hoop house and we realized that when the, when the water would evaporate, it would go all the way up to the top, hit the top of the hoop, which is a half moon shape, if you will, and then just drip back down, which made the salt virtually inedible. It also wouldn't dry because it was always dripping back into itself. Uh, and then we tried that same method again, but also adding um, some sort of um, uh, convection. So we had little solar fans running, and that was a little better. Little better. So then finally we came up with a decision to make more or less uh, a building that looks like a 90-degree angle on one side and 40-degree angle on the other with, um, with clear panels all the way down on the southern edge. And we put in, uh, we put, I can't tell you all our secrets, but we put in enough infrastructure so that we could retain the heat at night and that we could conduct out the moisture during the day. One of the common threads through all of the farms on this podcast is the sense of community that helped them get their start. That's how we roll around here. But a neighbor lending a tractor or a helping hand can only get you so far. 
they were also forced to work with the Massachusetts Department of Health to get approval to actually make salt. And that was a very funny phone call when I called them and said, hi, my name's Heidi Feldman and I'm interested in making sea salt. And the person on the other end said, you're, you're what now? So that hasn't been done since like the Revolutionary War. And we're not really sure we issue permits for that. <laughs> but where there's a will, there's a way. So we went down that road and they required us to get the water tested, which was great. We completely agreed with that. We didn't want to put out a product that would have potentially hazardous products in it. And fortunately, all the testing that we did, the water quality has always been fantastic. And our minerals, uh, our mineral counts have also come back very high in several different areas. So we, um, we started moving forward with this process. We built the building. Now the challenge was getting the water into the building. Uh, and at first, what we were doing was we were going to the beach with five-gallon buckets and we were walking down into the, a south-facing beach. So you're dealing with the waves and you're dealing with the current and the wind and grabbing and you know, trying to fill those buckets and then walk up the beach. A five-gallon bucket full of water weighs over 40 pounds. None of these buckets were making it back to their truck full. And each one, one by one, was taken from the water across the beach to fill a tank. That was formerly used at Chicama Vineyards. So we'd gotten some tanks from Chicama Vineyards when they went out of business. Um, and we came back to the farm and we filter it and we put it into the solar evaporator. And four weeks later, we had salt. We were so excited. So we launched and then we sold out so quickly that we uh, had to start a backup. Our emergency failover was to boil water. So for three months in our first summer, we actually did boil water. I'm very ashamed. Um, and two things happened. One, we made salt, but we didn't like the taste. We did sell a little bit of it, but we also ruined our stove. <laughs> it was obvious this was not the way to move forward. Their product was a hit, but it was time to make some changes. We decided to scale up, and we found these these cubes called uh, USDA tanks, and they're, some are food grade and some are not, and we got a couple of those, and we figured out how to get the water out of the ocean and up into the tanks. Which required a whole new set of skills, math and science. Neither of us are science majors, neither of us are math majors. So we had to figure out rise over run. We had to figure out the dynamics of having, you know, 8,000 to 10,000 gallons of water, oh, sorry, 8,000 to 10,000 pounds of water in the back of a moving vehicle and what kind of gross vehicle weight and what kind of weight the truck could hold in the back and all that good stuff. Despite not being math or science majors, they did figure it out. So we started bringing back the water and we found that um, we had wanted it to be initially like a summer kind of thing where you're drying the salt just in the summer. But the summer weather is so unpredictable. Um, and we found that batches could take anywhere from the time that we put the water in from four weeks to four months, depending on the weather. With these unpredictable conditions, it proved a very difficult business to scale. We didn't want to participate in the mass race. We really wanted to be a local food product, and we wanted those who come to travel here to have a taste of the vineyard that they could take home with them as well. Sea salt has a higher salinity than table salt. And because of the unique mineral composition of the water from which it's harvested, sea salts from different regions have different character. It quickly became obvious to Heidi that she could be doing more with her sea salts. And then I quickly came up, uh, uh, came like head on into 
what are those products that will go into a semi, semi-dry, semi-moist salt that will infuse the flavor and not get all wimpy, that won't turn brown, um, and that is local. She began thinking of the foods that she could pair her sea salts with. And living on an island, an obvious choice was seafood. I love fish. I never thought I would say that in public to anybody, but I love fish. And I totally have to say it's my husband who turned me on that because, Mom, if you ever hear this, I'm sorry, but you are the worst cook in the world and you did nothing good to cod. My mom would take these god-awful, I don't know what, um, crumbs and she would egg the fish and put it in the crumbs both sides and then she would take her skillet out and put it for like 10 minutes aside. Please don't try this fish preparation at home. Despite this obviously traumatic childhood experience, Heidi did eventually grow to love fish. I wanted something that went great with fish and I can't think of anything better than dill with most of the fish that I eat. And we normally put lemon on our fish as well, right? So I said, why not get that lemon dill flavor into the salt? But lemons don't grow in Zone 7A here on the vineyard. Lemon verbena was just fantastic because it was this really high lemony note. And it will grow in Zone 7 as a tender perennial. Um, Lemon verbena and dill was very quickly um, followed by uh, smoked oak. They experimented with several different kinds of wood, including fruit trees. But the taste at the end wasn't very different. And the fruit trees often had so much sap that they would clog up their smoker. We have been experimenting and using oak now for about five years in our seven-year history. And it's a real uh, crowd pleaser. It's a big, rough crystal, which can be um, easily pounded down with the heel of a knife or in a mortar and pestle. It's important to point out that sea salt doesn't do well in a salt grinder. The brine inside the salt will actually clog up your grinder itself. The salinity is much higher, so it can be used sparingly and is a great finishing product. Heidi and Curtis have developed several other flavors, which you can find out more about on her website. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to get into all of them today. We have seven varieties. Uh, We package them in three different really three different sizes, but five different options. Um, And we found that we get a great mixture of home chefs who just love the taste of sea salt as a finishing salt on their foods, whether it's popcorn when they're sitting and watching Netflix or when they've got family members over visiting and they're putting that smoked oak over a beautiful locally grown steak or, you know, some other meat product. Uh, And we feel as though uh, we're doing the right thing by the community, working with the chefs, working with producers of other products to get our salt into their product. Um, We we do that at a discounted rate because we want our salt salt to be eaten. We really believe that, uh, you know, kosher salt has its place. Table salt really doesn't have its place anywhere. Um, Doesn't have its place. Uh, So we believe that if you're going to eat any salt at all, eat uh, natural sea salt. Heidi and Curtis faced a number of problems when they first began farming on Martha's Vineyard. But their adaptability and perseverance led them to produce an incredible product that I use regularly, and I hope that you will too. To find out more about Heidi and Curtis at Down Island Farm and Martha's Vineyard Sea Salt, visit my website, foodmindedfellow.com, and look for this episode 
in the podcast page. While you're on the website, you can find out more about my private chef services on Martha's Vineyard. You can also look into my blog or some of the articles that I've written about fishing and cooking on Martha's Vineyard. Tune in next week when I sit down with Lydia Fisher, a multi-generational islander who had to leave the island to understand how much she loved it. Until next time, stay home and stay safe. This podcast was funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism.